Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. We are recording on Friday, February 8th, and this is a, why don't they just call it election already, edition. You will recognize that I am not Emma Graney, your regular Fearless Friday host. She'll be back next week. What? I know. It's the accent that gives it away. It's true. (laughs) My name is Sarah O'Donnell, and I'm the journal's assistant managing editor. And we had such fun last week that we've reconvened the same crew to talk about key issues that matter to Alberta politics. So with us via the miracle of technology from Calgary is columnist Chris Varco. Hello. And here in our cozy studio, we've got managing editor Dave Breckenridge, who's host of Post Media's 10-3 podcast. All of you missed when she put air quotes around fun. Oh, no, it was fun. <laughs> I thought, well, I had fun, but I just don't get to come on the show every week anymore. So, and of course, we've got provincial affairs reporter Claire Clancy. Hello. And uh, I wish I had nicknames for you all. I think I've said that before, but yeah. I, I don't. So anyways. We'll work on them. Okay. We are in this weird pre-election space here in Alberta that means the government has been busy with a lot of little announcements here and there. Uh, The opposition parties have been certainly criticizing them for all these little announcements here and there. Scandalettes popping up in assorted constituencies. But I thought this week we'll try to just focus on some bigger issues that also take us into the federal realm, um, because I think we're going to have a lot of that coming up. Um, But so we'll start with talking about Bill C-69 and what's happening in the Fed in the federal Senate, not that Alberta has a local Senate, um, but we'll <laughs> so Bill C-69 and why that matters and why that is an issue Albertans should keep their eyes on still. I want to go back to the latest on the curtailment story, which I know continued to have some repercussions this week. And, and maybe that's a time we can even talk about the latest jobs numbers that are out this morning. And uh, and then we'll get into the, the meat of it, like why isn't an election been called already? What's going on there? And uh, why does it feel like there has been one called already? So C-69, let's start there. We don't normally pay a lot of attention to the Senate, even though one of our dear former colleagues is now a senator, but it sure is getting a lot of attention over C-69. So why is this bill so important to Albertans? Can someone just start and sum all that up? So C-69, it's a very hefty piece of federal legislation, but uh, what it would do is it would create um, new guidelines, uh, new time limits, um, and new uh, rules for environmental assessments on energy projects. It would relate to any potential project across the country, including things like um, pipelines, as well as creating a new uh, federal energy regulator, which is like one of the biggest um, pieces of that bill. So the province of Alberta has said multiple times that they're concerned with the bill because they think that it could cause future delays in big projects, obviously, without the Trans Mountain Pipeline um, starting construction and with with issues around that. It's that's been kind of a rallying cry for the provincial government that they, um, you know, that Bill C-69 as it stands right now would would potentially hurt Alberta projects. Um, So that's a really kind of broad based look at it. And I might also add that pretty much unanimously industry, particularly the energy industry, is opposed to it. They're saying if this piece of legislation goes ahead, you will not see another cross-border, cross-provincial border pipeline built in the country. The mining industry has some concerns as well. Obviously, all of the main opposition parties in Alberta have concerns with it. 
And so I think the attention is really dialed up in the last few months about will there be changes made? And it's up to the Senate right now. The legislation has gone through two readings in the House of Commons. It's now before the Senate, which is looking at whether there needs to be amendments made to this bill. And I think the, the, the last hope here for Alberta and Alberta Industries, I think, to get changes is going to come in the next few months. And um, I mean, this, so the Senate did start their hearings on it this week. And uh, what they haven't obviously done any change to the bill, but they did make a choice that I don't know that they always do for Senate hearings, especially of, of a committee. And, and they've decided to travel and, and do some hearings in different regions across Canada. Dave, good move, bad move? Is it just, is it just, are they just trying to draw things out? Potentially trying to draw things out. I give them credit for trying to get as much attention on this as possible. I think, you know, moving the hearings around across the country will draw more attention to the issue. And I think that's important. I think that not many Canadians understand what the bill is all about. Even admittedly myself, it took me a while to kind of grasp what some of the issues were. Um, This isn't a small piece of legislation. I, I think that... While some may say, oh, good, if you know, if we don't see another pipeline built in Canada, that's a good thing. I, I think that's a short-sighted view, and I think that we need to have the ability to develop our resources in a responsible manner. And, and if there are cons- legitimate concerns about whether this bill will stop that from happening, then those need to be aired out. And I give the Senate credit for trying to make this as public as possible. Like you look at one of the one of the issues that people are pointing out is that the timelines become all skewed. Ottawa claims that it's going to cap major project timelines to 600 days, but the one of the big pieces of this legislation is early engagement process to get all of these parties to the table to discuss potential issues. That's on top of the 600 days, which would make the process longer. You'd have 180 days of early engagement, and then cabinet can go on and extend the process if they saw fit for as long as they wanted. So these are concerns that need to be dealt with if it's expected that we want to develop our resources. Environment Minister Shannon Phillips has said about the bill that, um, yeah, that it lacks clarity. And that's one of the big issues that the government's facing. Uh, Trudeau has said that it's actually going to make legislation clearer. But when you have the Trans Mountain Pipeline still uh, still delayed and um, still ongoing issues with it, I think there seems to be a lot of opposition to this bill because it doesn't seem to actually set out clearly what energy producers would have to do and how projects would get built. I also think this gets to a bigger fight, which is really the the question which the Trudeau government has grappled with for four years is how do you balance off the environment uh, versus energy, and how do you you know how do you get the economic concerns down right, and also get the environmental concerns right? And we've seen them grapple with that issue, whether it was with the Trans Mountain pipelines or with LNG development. And Bill C sixty nine is kind of the embodiment of that, trying to straddle the fence of making sure that um, you know there's environmental concerns are adequately weighed, but that you don't stymie development. And how do you get that right? And I think that's what the Senate is going to have to grapple with, and it'll be interesting. When when those hearings go across Canada, because I think the viewpoints in Edmonton and Calgary will be much different than the viewpoints that are heard in Toronto or in downtown uh, Vancouver. I mean, one of the challenges is who shows up at these hearings, who are, are who from the public shows up, who from industry shows up, what groups show up. It it can be the the downside of, of public consultations or public engagement is if you have very engaged groups get involved, because we've seen public opinion polling showing Canadians on the whole, 
appreciate Alberta oil and would like to see pipelines built, but would will those opinions be reflected in the testimony at these hearings? And from a, bringing it back a little bit to the lens to the provincial government, uh, provincial governments in Alberta have made an art over the years of making the federal government the bad guy, and sometimes they are, on a whole range of issues. For a while, as you mentioned, there was a lot, a few weeks ago, it's been a month though now or so, there was a lot of talk coming from the Notley government about this and how difficult this was, but that's quieted down lately. How much, how much would they... How much do you think they should or will uh, be starting to talk loudly about this again as we go into a provincial election? Will they use it as something to kind of point to and, and set the federal government up as a bad guy? I think that's a great question. It'll be really interesting to see, um, especially as we come up on that deadline for the environmental assessment to go to the National Energy Board on the Trans Mountain Pipeline. It'll be really interesting to see how that debate unfolds and what blame is laid with the federal government if the Trans Mountain project doesn't move forward. And obviously, Bill C-69 will be a big part of that conversation because it's become so controversial. It does not leave no harm to run a provincial election campaign against Justin Trudeau. As her provincial opponent, Jason Kenney, has shown, you can uh, score lots of points with Alberta voters by taking wax at the federal government led by uh, a man with the last name of Trudeau. I don't think it'll I don't think it'll hurt her at all. I think that a lot of the debate is about how the feds are handling Alberta energy. I know that there have been pieces that have tried to criticize the Notley government for its advertising, claiming that uh, our advertising on pipelines is trying to make BC, trying to pit the rest of Canada against BC. It's not, I don't see the advertising as having done that. Um, adver- the advertising about pipelines has tried to reframe the debate, rightfully so, as BC having an issue with federal government approval of a pipeline. But, you know, this is a, this is a case where, uh, the incumbent government needs to score points to win back voters who may be disenchanted with the government and and uh, taking wax of the feds is, has always been popular here. So we were just talking about through C69, energy and moving oil, as we so often do. And so let's move on to the topic of the actual moving of oil by rail, which came up again this week, Chris, when you were at uh, or when Suncor reported their uh, year-end results. Can you sum up what Suncor was saying, which follows what we were talking about last week with other energy companies and their comments about the impact of curtailment? Sure. Suncor uh, is the largest oil sands producer in the province. It's also a large integrated company. That means that they take the petroleum and they refine it. They upgrade it and they refine it. They turn it into gasoline, which they sell through the Petro-Canada stations across the country. They are a beneficiary when oil prices go up, as they have from curtailment, but they also benefit when oil prices go down in their downstream operations, their refining operations, because they can buy their feedstock cheaper. So the refiners, which includes Imperial, and it also includes Husky Energy uh, and Imperial Oil, have been very adamant that they're opposed to this program of curtailment of scaling back oil production in this province by about 9% to push prices higher. Uh, Imperial complained last week that this was having a negative impact upon rail shipments. Suncor came back and said virtually the same kind of things. They said that it's time that the provincial government look for a, quote, soft exit or a soft landing and get rid of this program because of the unintended consequences 
that it is impacting the economics for oil companies to ship their crude by rail into the United States. So what I was wondering about this is if they're saying that it's if they're going to be if this continues ship less rail, ship less by rail, does that mean that Alberta still needs 7,000 rail cars? I think they still do and it's it takes a bit of an explanation but the, the core of the concern right now is that because the differential has fallen so low, it's not economic to put your barrels and move them down to the U.S. Gulf Coast. So it maybe costs you 15 or $20 a barrel to do that. Right now, the differential is only a tenth. So there's no economic incentive for oil companies to put their barrels on rail. So what's happening and what we've seen in the last two or three weeks, the amount of crude in Alberta in storage is beginning to rise again. Uh, it went up by about 2 million barrels in the past week. We've seen rail shipments fall in half in the last three weeks. Um, so that's kind of destroying the economics on the short term. But curtailment is only meant to be a temporary program. It's really just supposed to bridge the gap between now and when new pipeline capacity comes online. Buying new rail cars is really meant to be sort of a midterm solution so that we've got an additional avenue of moving crude out in sort of that nine to 18 month time frame. And that's really critical, I think, because what happens if we have another delay to say the Line 3 project or Trans Mountain or Keystone? Uh, we're going to have oil back up again and then it's going to push the prices down and we're going to be right back to where we started from in this crisis. So I think the, the idea of buying all these rail cars is really a midterm solution and needs to be looked at at that way. And it just provides optionality for the province and for the province's producers as we go forward in the next couple of years. The province as well has said they've made no sign that they're going to um, stop curtailment in the near future. As we saw, they increased production limits last week a little bit. But um, speaking to the energy ministry, it sounds like curtailment will, at least for the foreseeable future, still be the, um, you know, the program despite this opposition from these refiners. I think it just, you know, Suncor coming out and making the, the comments uh, it speaks to how complex the issue is in general. Uh, Alberta's economy and Canada's economy hurts when the differential is too large, but when the differential is too small, the companies hurt because it because of the cost of moving oil by rail as opposed to moving oil by pipeline. And so the the government is trying to to balance its needs with the needs of industry. And you know, we're not going to solve it in in here in this uh, podcasting studio trying to trying to sort it all out. But I, I think that um, it does. There is the potential for it to have blowback on the Notley government. But at the same time, the Notley government still has to weigh uh, what is best for uh, the province, its economy and its bottom line. Well, then I'll scratch off my question about what's the solution, Dave. So, <laughs> sorry, Chris. I don't know. What, I'm were, in journalism. <laughs> you were about yeah, to say something. Yeah, I was going to say there's. I think there's two issues that the Notley government has to be aware of and, and will be aware of. And number one is the impact that this is going to have upon investment in the oil sector. We heard from Imperial Oil last week and again last night, the CEO of the company talking about the fact that they might delay the timelines on their big Aspen oil sands project if they think curtailment is going to impact uh, their rail shipments. So if it impacts projects that are moving ahead, that will be a concern and that might become a political football. The second thing is all the uh, all the parties in, in Alberta are aligned and the fact that they support curtailment. But if it looks like the provincial government is 
is doing this in an incompetent manner. In other words, if they're not doing it right, if they're not turning the dial in just the right direction to get that sort of supply demand balance to where they want it to be, I think it will become an issue on the campaign trail. But that's going to take, I think, a few more weeks to play out. It'll be interesting to see if that's the case, if the opposition parties turn against curtailment altogether or or which may be an easier argument to make for the public than saying that the Nolly government has botched curtailment given that they've all been in favor of it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that's I think that's going to be something to watch. What, what is curious is we've heard virtually nothing from the UCP in the last seven or eight days as it relates to curtailment and the concerns that have been raised by Imperial and Suncor. But we have been hearing concerns about other matters from the UCP. So why don't we uh, why don't we move to the whole issue of are we campaigning or are we not campaigning? What like it's okay? So we've done the business, the important high level discussions about oil and policy. Now okay, into the nitty gritty of politics. Like, does it not feel like? We're in election in an election right now, and I know other columnists have written about this. This is not a unique observation on my part. Yeah, it feels like the lead up to any expected election, the UCP is is doing their best to try and criticize the government for doing what past governments have done, which is using the public purse to uh, campaign in advance of calling an election. Now, uh, the difference in Alberta anyway is that you had the progressive conservatives in power for 43-odd years, and the NDP under the PC dynasty would routinely criticize the government for using the public purse to campaign in advance of an election campaign. Now that the NDP is in government and has the benefit of controlling the purse strings, they can you know set up election-style announcements uh, without having called an election and there's nothing technically wrong with it because that's what all governments tend to do. Um, but for the NDP to claim, oh no, we're not doing it, I think is, you know, it looks, it, you know, it doesn't hold much water really. And I mean, we're still at the point where the NDP hasn't officially announced all their candidates. Um, we still have a few weeks to go before they're going to potentially call an election here. We th Everyone is thinking it's probably going to be after March 18th, the throne speech. We don't even know if they're going to do a budget, but we do have Finance Minister Joe Sisi doing telephone town halls and pre-budget consultations. Um, so, I, yeah, I think it it's ramping up for sure. Um, is it wrong to use the public purse to campaign? Probably. Yep. <laughs> um, how, can you prove it? You know, no. What is, is, it, is what a is rule the being broken? The question, no. the, that fine line between what is the business of regular government and what is the business of campaigning? The two instances that really stick out for me are the non-announcement press conference that the government held outside the Tom Baker Cancer Center in Calgary. I don't recall them really announcing anything new, but they made sure to complain about how the previous conservative government didn't do anything to get the Tom Baker move forward as a way of trying to say that the conservatives don't care about Albertans and healthcare and cancer care. And then the other one um, was Rachel Notley's speech to the Edmonton Chamber, where the bulk of her speech was just basically a, a broadside on Jason Kenney. Um, and you're seeing that more and more. As the closer that we get to the throne speech, I think you're going to see the attacks ramp up on Jason Kenney from the NDP um, because they need to instill a certain level of fear in voters that uh, Jason Kenney government will be bad for Albertans. 
at announcements that Notley is giving, she has kind of repeated those comments she made in that Edmonton Chamber of Commerce speech where she says Albertans will have a clear choice. Uh cuts with the UCP or investment with NDP. And she's really ramping up that rhetoric. And we've seen that repeated again and again. So I think over the next few weeks, as we go to these announcements, it's going to be much of the same thing until that election is called. It seems like we're in the phony war phase, though. Do you know what I mean? In the sense that the opposition is, everybody's outraged about everybody else. So we've got the government spending more than a million dollars on these made in Alberta energy advertisements that that are all over uh, the place these days. And, And then we've got the opposition, which are outraged about it happening. And frankly, every government does it. Every opposition party shows outrage about it. We're at the stage now where let's just get on with the election. I think that's what everyone wants. We want an election. I know, but from a <laughs> from a strategy perspective, I was really because at first I thought, well, yes, they should. You know, part of me thinks, yes, let's just get in this and get this over with. But then I was thinking strategically, if you're the NDP, why would you pull the trigger too soon? Because there are all these other kind of little mini issues burning all over the place where issues are cropping up with various candidates. But then at the same time, that affects them as well. And then I thought, well, why don't they do a budget? And then I was looking back at last year's budget coverage. And I thought, ah, this is why they would not bring in a budget, because the headlines were that by 2023, Alberta will have $96 billion in debt. And that is probably not the headlines you want to go into a campaign with. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the, like all the parties are going to have to tell us their financial projections, but at least... I hope. Well, I hope. They, you know, should. they should. They're, if, they're, they should I will, be honest. Albertans yes. deserve detailed f- fiscal plans from all the parties considering all the discussion that the media and politicians have had about the state of Alberta's finances, so we deserve that kind of detail. However, it would be foolish of the government to put all that down in black and red ink in uh, detailed budget documents before an election because then you'd have the opposition and the media being able to dig through all that and and report on and comment on uh, what the government has done over the last four years with their finances. And that doesn't look and again this is all about the politics of when to call an election and it also talks about the the flaw in the redford government's notion of a fixed election period i think that it still leaves too much power in the hands of of government to decide and strategize over when is best to call an election the government can rag the puck as long as they like until they get all their candidates appointed or maybe they have candidates lined up and just aren't prepared to announce them yet so they can just hold on to that writ drop uh, a few weeks more. I also think the government wants to see some better economic news come in, in this situation, and it's just not happening. If you look at where, where we've come since October, we had the differential blowout, we've had the unemployment rate increase, we saw horrible job numbers come out today. Uh, oil prices haven't really budged. There's a lack of confidence right now. So I think they're hoping that there's going to be, you know, some light at the end of the rainbow here. And I think they've, you know, been waiting for some good economic news and it's just not coming. The question is, how long will it take before they can get some some momentum uh, in that direction? And I think I had promised that we would talk about those jobs numbers when we when I introduced the show. I mean, quickly, Claire, what what was that news this morning? So what we're seeing is that in the second straight month, Alberta has seen its jobless rate rise to 6.8%, up from 6.4%. Um, and 
it's it's not good news for uh, for Albertans. Obviously, this is all tied to this you know struggling oil and gas sector. Um, so it's not a surprise to anyone. Uh, but definitely not good news for the NDP to not be able to announce positive job growth. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and does that translate into about sixteen thousand jobs? Am I remembering that correctly? Does anyone remember, Chris? Is that am I right on that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe so. And and it's the full-time jobs that, that have disappeared. The other thing, and you're starting to hear people talk about this, is the possibility of a double-dip recession, um, which is, you know, that you, you have a recession like we had in 2015, 2016, then the baseline of economic growth has fallen so much that you increase, but then you have this danger of things slowing down and you going back into a recession or near-recession-like conditions. We know that curtailment, I hate to come back to this, but we know that the curtailment is going to cut about 1% of the GDP growth out of the province's sort of forecast for the year, at least that's what the private banks are telling us. So if things slow down further, you could sort of end up in this sort of really murky sort of period where jobs aren't being created or or jobs are disappearing and things aren't moving forward like I think everybody had hoped they would. And in terms of kind of political announcements, by the end of the month, we should have the newest fiscal update from the government. And that will be the update that includes information because of what happened during the uh, terrible oil differential. None of that was reflected in the last fiscal update from the government. Um, So I think that's going to be really interesting because presenting those numbers, uh, which I'm assuming it won't be a super rosy picture, and then going into the throne speech and then, you know, potentially a budget would be tough. Right. Well, as everyone's pondering these things, should we give them some good stuff from the gallery to add into the mix as well when they're thinking about all those serious employment issues? Why don't we ask Chris, what have you got this week for us for a suggestion? Yeah, you know, I think there was a very important uh, uh, column that was written earlier this week, not by me, but uh, by my colleague, Lisa Corbella, about former Alberta Health Minister Ron Leipert, who is now a federal MP. Uh, He gave a very moving speech in the House of Commons earlier this week in support of a private member's bill from an NDP MP, uh, which deals with the call for a national suicide prevention strategy. Uh, He got up and talked about how uh, this has impacted his life, uh, pointing out that his own 45-year-old daughter had taken her life uh, about a year ago, and he was pressing the need for a national strategy. Uh, And he pointed out, and I think it's been pointed out here, that we've seen these national strategies, such as in Scotland, have a dramatic impact. I think there they achieved an 18% drop in suicides. Uh, over the period of a decade. So I think that's an important piece. And I think there's a lot of people in provincial politics who will remember uh, Ron Leipert. And uh, anyways, I would recommend that as a read. Yeah, it was a good read. Thanks for that, Chris. Um, I want to recommend something that you can uh, watch, and it's more in the journalism field than anything. And it's about a couple of characters. Uh, I'd read a little bit of, I've read their stuff in the past, of course, but I I was interested to see this show on HBO, uh, Crave, I guess now. Uh, It's uh, Breslin and Hamill, Deadline Artists. It's a, it's a, documentary about these great New York City columnists, Pete Hamill and Jimmy Breslin, who many people may have read their stuff over the years, but they are classic. And it made me want to go actually pick up some of their old columns. You can get their stuff in ebooks and different collections. And uh, it's just fun to see their writing. And some of it goes back a ways and, you know, some of it holds up better than others, but just their writing styles, uh, it was it was fun to see and fun to see about their friendship and their competition and this like gritty world of New York newspapering through the decades. So that's where I'm going to recommend. Dave, why don't you go next? 
All right, I'm going to recommend a piece from the Auto Citizens Vito Polisi. Uh, it's just a, a, an interesting numbers-based piece. Again, it's kind of bleak economic news, but um, here's what the numbers say about screwed millennials. Uh, it's the, the whole... Uh, notion that despite uh, being the subject of much mockery from older generations uh, people in kind of the 18 to 35 year old range are kind of in a bad place uh, financially speaking and career-wise and uh, the numbers that Vito pulls out talks about wage stagnation and the fact that manufacturing jobs in Canada have decreased so much um, and, you know, the impact that's having on other generations and also the impact other generations are having on them. Although none of it is the fault of Generation X, I must add. It's all the boomers' fault. Our producer, Carson Jarema, will appreciate that recommendation as, a, as someone who clearly identifies with the millennial age group. I'm a millennial and it's brutal. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Claire, just what have you got for us? Um, I'm going to recommend a great podcast that I'm obsessed with called The Dropout. And it follows, um, it's a six part ABC radio podcast about Elizabeth Holmes, who is known as the uh, self-made billionaire who founded the Theranos company, which turned out to be a massive fraud. And um, that was, you know, publicized a, f a couple of years ago. But the story goes through basically the 10 to 15 years where she built her company from the age of 19 and lying to investors, how she got people to invest, um, had people like Joe Biden visit the facility. Um, and the entire point of the company was that she said she was creating a uh, blood test where you could prick your finger and test for multiple different diseases or conditions um, just with one drop of blood. And they managed to roll out programs in like Walgreens in the US and just this massive fraud that has been compared to Bernie Madoff. So it's really fascinating and I really recommend the podcast. Oh, that sounds amazing. I was, that, I was so interested in that story a couple years ago, so I didn't realize that was out. Oh, that sounds really neat. Well, thank you everyone. Thank you, Claire, Dave, and Chris for joining me. And, Thanks, Sarah. Uh, thank you to our producer, Carson Jarama, for uh, editing and posting and uh, making sure that we sound really good. Uh, next week, we are expecting Emma back. So thank you, listeners, for uh, uh, coming on this ride with me for the last few weeks when I got to sit in as host. You can make sure that you find us on all the various places that you subscribe to podcasts, recommend us to your friends, especially if we're going into election mode. We know a lot of people are going to be looking out for Alberta politics news and all the different places they can get it. And we will be back in the press gallery next week.